so last week we had kind of like a, a flurry um, survey sermon where we covered about three-fourths of the eschatological discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. We did like the second third of chapter 24 and all of 25 because it's kind of a contextual study. It's kind of a comparative thing where Jesus has just spent time really kind of ignoring or um, dodging maybe these two questions that the disciples asked. They said, hey, when you come, what's it going to look like? And, and how are we going to know? When's it going to happen? And Jesus says, basically gave him an answer. And he said, what it's going to look like is kind of like it's always looked like. There's going to be wars. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be um, people being mean to each other. There's going to be um, all this stuff. And, and really, it's, it's one of the reasons every generation since then has thought they might be in the last days because the description Jesus gives kind of fits any time over the last 2,000 years. And so he doesn't really give a solid answer to that. And then he goes, now concerning your other question, when is it going to happen? No one knows. No one knows the day or the hour it's going to happen. And so Jesus kind of shifts gears on him and gets into this different answer to a question I didn't really ask that involved the nature of their waiting, the way that they wait is what Jesus seems more concerned with. And he spends the entire rest of the the sermon, the entire rest of that sermon discussing the way we wait. So he doesn't really answer the questions they ask. Instead, he takes it to what's more important, which is how you wait. And he does it with a series of, of uh, parables. One's got this wicked servant. And, and we talked last week about how each one kind of makes an, an assumption about the heart of the master um, that, kind of, that kind of leads into the next step. The first one assumes the master is aloof and isn't coming back. And, and he, he just turns wicked because he doesn't feel like the master is ever going to return. And when the master comes, it surprises him and, and he doesn't do well. And then so the second one is the opposite. It's these ten uh, maidens who assume the master is, is easy. And so they don't really do anything they were supposed to do. They were supposed to kind of light his way back. They don't. And when they miss his return, they kind of come knocking on the door. Hey, let us in. You know, they just assume they're automatically in. They assume there's not much they really needed to do. And they would be in. And then they get surprised when he says, I don't even know you. And so Jesus kind of leaves us with this feeling at this point, like this, so this, this return is intense. We have to take it like super seriously. And then he follows up with this third parable about this guy who was given um, uh, something to steward. Actually, three guys were given something to steward. And Jesus spends the most time on this one who, who knew that this was serious business. He even says the words, I knew you were a hard man and that, that, that you were strict. And so I hid what you gave me. I played it safe. I didn't want to risk messing up or losing what I was given. And so I, I tucked it in. Here's what's yours back. I didn't really do anything with it. I didn't advance it. I didn't take it deeper. I'm just returning to you as is. And he's surprised to find that the master was not happy with that either. And so we've got the aloof, the servant that assumes the master's aloof and not returning, the one that assumes the master is easy and is going to let him in no matter what, and the one who assumes the master is hard. And we've got to do this just right and got to play it safe. And Jesus says none of those are right. And he kind of leaves them hanging in this place of then how are we supposed to wait? And he finishes up with this thing that's not really a parable, it's kind of a prediction of what it's going to be like. He said in the last days, I'm going to come and I'm going to separate the sheep from the goat. And, and the, those that are good, I'm going to say, you took care of me, you loved me, you, you gave me food, you gave me drink, you clothed me, you visited me. And, they, and they're shocked. They're like, when did we do any of this? Like, when did we do any of these things? And he says, when you did it to the least of your brethren, you did it unto me. And so we find these people, the ones that are, I guess, um, 
They still seem surprised by his return, but they're happily surprised because they've been loving people. They've been going out loving people. And these are the only ones. So you got the, the one who assumes the master's aloof and not returning, does whatever he wants, gets punished. The one who assumes he's easy and they don't have to do their job, they can just assume they're in, they get punished. The one who plays it safe because the master's hard. I'm not going to take any risks. I'm not going to advance his kingdom. I'm not going to risk messing up. They get punished. The ones who don't are the ones who are almost um, just going about their lives, doing good, loving on people. And these are the ones that Jesus returns. We talked last week about love languages a little bit, how we, you know, most of us are pretty familiar now um, with the love language talk. If you try to tell somebody you love them and you don't use their love language, a lot of time they won't hear it. And it feels like in this passage, Jesus is showing us his love language. Like if you want to show me love, the way I hear it is by you loving on other people. That's how I feel love. That's how I feel your love is when you love others, especially those less fortunate than you. And so that kind of wrapped up um, the eschatological discourse. That's how he ends it. That's where he goes. And so this is kind of our sum up um, sermon, kind of when we sum it up, because next week we actually have one more week before we start into our All Saints series in November. But next week's kind of special because next week I talked my wife into preaching with me. So Esther and I are actually preaching together, right? Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to kind of do, because as we've been in this, this kind of discourse study, what we've found more than anything else is that Jesus um, was talking about the kingdom of God. In every one of these discourses, he's stressing the kingdom of God, what it is, how it moves, um, what it's supposed to look like, what our heart is supposed to be like within the kingdom of God. And so next week we're going to do, um, a little bit different than I normally do, we're going to get real specific on what that looks like today. So we're going to talk about um, a couple of the hot topics that are out in the world um, today and, and what the kingdom has to say about those. And since we're in kind of a time where, um, where gender is kind of a major issue, everything from gender confusion and non-binary understandings of gender to the Me Too movement. Like right now, everything, gender seems like a super hot topic. And so I thought it would be appropriate if, if I brought the other gender up to speak with me. So the two of us are going to um, kind of do a, 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 the same sermon from, from two different perspectives. So it'll be fun. So next week's kind of a special week, which means we're wrapping up our discourse study officially tonight. Um, and so what I thought I would do is we're going to go through, you know, we're just going to do a quick, small study through the entire book of Matthew. You know, it shouldn't take long. Um, but if, uh, if, uh, we're going to look at the way this book is kind of constructed because these, these discourses, these sermons that we pulled out are not just random things that, that Matthew stuck in there, just these random teachings. It's actually the way he constructed his book. So I'm going to just kind of scan through some of this. If you have your Bible, um, with you or on a device, open it up and just kind of scan the pericope headings as we go through. Um, so you can kind of, Double check my work, I guess, and make sure I'm being honest with what, what's in Matthew because it's kind of, it's kind of fascinating with what he does here. So Matthew opens up with, um, this very Jewish, um, opening. He, he opens up with a genealogy where he kind of traces Jesus' genealogy through the, through David because that's a very messianic thing that the Messiah was supposed to be from the line of David all the way back to Abraham. And then he, uh, talks about the, uh, these foreign kings that came to worship Jesus. And it's, it's kind of fascinating. These are, these are some of the things that, 
Sometimes we miss, sometimes we have this, this belief that the Bible was almost dictated to the disciples, like whatever God said right, they wrote, you know, and they just kind of, and that's not usually the way it happened. They, as far as they knew, they had a plan and a purpose and a, and a, and an audience they had in mind. And so Matthew wrote to a very Jewish audience. We know that he was writing to the Christian Jews. Um, and so he included this visit from these foreign kings. It's ironic that Luke, who was, uh, wrote to Gentiles, included these, the shepherds and, and some of the people. But a Jew would have put no credit in what a shepherd said. Shepherds were kind of low on the totem pole in the Jewish culture. And so Matthew just leaves them out. And he includes this visit from foreign kings because one of the messianic kind of uh, prophecies with the, the, that the kings of other nations were going to be drawn to the Messiah. And so this would have been a very Jewish symbol um, to, to point out that these foreigners even came to see his birth. And a Jew would have caught that immediately. He brings in Bethlehem in this kind of obscure um, prophetic verse about how Bethlehem was going to play into um, the, the messianic story. And then he goes into this super familiar um, kind of narrative outline that the Jews would have recited every Passover. Uh, this, this narrative where Jesus goes into Egypt and comes back out of Egypt. They would have told that Egyptian exodus story every Passover. There's the slaughter of the young babies. Matthew includes that. Luke doesn't. That, that Herod was so nervous about the prophecies that this, that this Messiah had come, he sends his soldiers to kill all the babies under two in that area. And so Joseph has to flee to Egypt. And that's a, that happened also in Egypt. That was a story they told where the Pharaoh was so afraid of the growth of the Israelites that he, he sent um, his soldiers to kill all the babies under two. And Moses' mother put him in a basket to save him. So we're, we're seeing kind of a familiar pattern forming in the way Matthew tells the early Jesus story. And then, of course, he, he gets baptized. Matthew tells the baptism story, which would have been symbolic of the parting of the Red Sea, that Jesus passes through water into his kind of ministry, that he has 30 years of kind of obscure growth. And then he, when he passes through water from that point on, he's, he has ministry. And then from there, he immediately goes into these 40 days, a number that would have just sparked every Jewish imagination going back to the 40 years in the wilderness that the Jews stayed after they were set free from their exodus. And so Matthew kind of intentionally follows this narrative and and he finds this narrative in Jesus's young story that would have fit the Jewish story. And I think it was to set up because Jesus's first sermon with Matthew, which Matthew records immediately after this is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus goes up on a mountain and delivers this picture of the kingdom of God. We call the Sermon on the Mount, which Moses immediately upon uh, coming through the Red Sea goes on Mount Sinai, comes down with the Ten Commandments. And after the 40 years of the wilderness, he goes on Mount Horeb and he delivers what we call the book of Deuteronomy, which was this kind of recap of the Jewish story to the people. And then he gives them their commands and their blessings and curses before they go into the promised land. So Matthew is intentionally setting up this sermon that any Jew would have recognized that he's doing kind of a, kind of a, this is a new Torah. This is a new, um, not replacing the old Torah. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. But he wants the people, the Jewish people who are reading this to recognize what he's doing here, what Jesus is doing here. And that is delivering the new commandments. And so Jesus spends this, this sermon going, you've heard it said this, but I say this. And so he's kind of establishing this newer and deeper 
Torah, and we talked about how it goes under the surface and it, it deals with motive stuff. You've heard don't kill, I tell you don't even get angry. You've heard don't commit adultery, I tell you don't even lust. He, he takes the, the Torah, these commands, and he pushes them down into our heart, into our motives and intentions. And so this first sermon is set up intentionally to follow everything that comes before. Everything that comes before is like a setup so that the Jews see what this first sermon is supposed to do. And a Jewish reader would have caught all of that immediately. And so Jesus gives this picture of this kind of upside down kingdom. This is what the kingdom of God looks like, where, where the, the humble are blessed and the, the meek inherit things. And, and so he sets up this kind of new and upside down kingdom, which we talked about almost 26 weeks ago. Like, so we've been in this study for a while. We've been kind of chewing this up for a bit. But uh, so chapters 5, 6, and 7 capture this sermon that is set up by chapters 1 through 4, right? And so Jesus uh, gives this sermon, then it kicks off this flurry of activity. If you've got your Bible, you can kind of scan along, but we're, uh, it's just, and they're each like two or three verses long. He, he bumps into a leper and, and heals him. He heals a centurion servant. The centurion comes and says, hey, my servant is sick. And he heals Peter's mother-in-law and he casts out demons from a couple of people and he heals a lot of sick people in one little spot. Um, this is where he quiets the waves during the storm when they're on the boat. Uh, casts out demons, heals the paralytic, a whole list of things. And then at the end of this kind of flurry act of activity, he says this. Matthew sums this all up by, the, by saying this. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And so Jesus has a flurry of activity. And one of the notable things here is there's really no pushback at this point. It's just miracle, 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 miracle. Nobody seems, everybody seems to love him. The crowd seems to be growing. And the, if, if there is an issue on the table, it's that Jesus can't seem to do it all. He can't seem to get to everybody. There's multitudes. And he even looks out at the end of this little flurry of activity and goes, man, there's just so much. Pray that God sends out laborers. And this flows immediately into what we call the missional dis- discourse, where he sends out his disciples for the first time. So, so he goes on this flurry of activity. He stands over and he goes, man, there's just the, the harvest is ripe. And then he turns around and says, and he, and he opens the missional discourse with, as you go, preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And then he kicks off what this missional uh, mindset is going to look like, what it's going to look like to go forth. And so he doesn't just send them out kind of blindly, like, hey, here, I want you to just go out and do good things and preach together. He spends several chapters demonstrating it first. This is what the kingdom looks like. This is what those advancing the kingdom look like. They go about, you know, praying for the sick and they go about, you know, casting out demons and they go about even raising the dead. And, and, they, and, and then he says, now you've seen it, go and do it. And he even kicks off his discourse with this kind of command, go and, go and do these same things. He tells them what to expect, what they're going to run into. And, uh, and, and for the rest of that discourse, it's all about, the going. It's all about this kind of harvest that he had prayed for. So 
Matthew gives us four chapters setting up this kind of new Torah. And then he gives us a few chapters kind of demonstrating what the kingdom advancement looks like. And then Jesus gives this sermon that goes along with that saying, now you go and do, now you go and do those things. And then immediately after that, Matthew kind of shifts gears again. And this one is uh, a little bit interesting. John the Baptist questions Jesus here. And he's like, are you the Messiah or do we look for another? Um, We've got Jesus's mom and brothers come and it says that they were concerned about him. They, they had heard what was happening, these crowds gathering. And you've got to remember, these are the people who knew him his whole life. You know, they, they, uh, they, they had never seen him act like this before. And so they're kind of concerned. There's, there's a point where they try to take him home. It says they showed up to actually take him back to Nazareth, to take him home, because they, they were probably nervous. You, in this kind of a culture where you've got Rome as kind of an overlord, you know, um, nation, and you start making this kind of a stir, they were probably worried about him. They were probably ner- nervous. If you keep gathering crowds like this, people who do that in Israel don't last long. Rome comes and gets them. And so they come in and get him. And then we have a list of, of people who start to reject him. This is, a, this is a spot where Jesus goes into a couple cities and they just outright reject him. And he has this little mini speech Woe unto you, Bethsaida. Woe unto you, Chorazin. If, you, if, if the Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah had had the opportunity you have, they would have repented. And he kind of almost condemns these whole cities that had rejected him. Uh, the Pharisees start to openly challenge him. The disciples one day are walking. They grab some grain and the Pharisees are right there to jump on him and say, hey, why are they working on the Sabbath? They're not supposed to pick grain on the Sabbath. And, and so Jesus, for the first time in the book, is starting to have some pushback. People are starting to kind of um, people are starting to question him and ask, you know, and, and, and get angry. This is the first time the book mentions that they were plotting his death, that the Pharisees were actually plotting Jesus' death. And he goes on this kind of, uh, he, he casts a demon out of somebody. And they're like, you only cast out demons because you worship demons. And uh, Jesus kind of gives his a house divided, can't stand, you know, speech. And, and he goes on this kind of brutal rampage where he calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers and an adulterous generation. And so for the first time, and then we also have these multitudes. This is the time when he goes over the, the Sea of Galilee a couple of times. And as soon as he lands, the multitude is already waiting for him. Like the, he can't seem to get away from him. There's one point he, the crowd is so big, he tries to sail over. And as soon as he gets there, he finds the crowd waiting for him there again. And so we, we have this picture of a, a few people who are confused, kind of aloof and like, you know, even his family is kind of like, maybe we should settle down a little bit before we get in trouble. And you got John the Baptist who's now in prison and he's kind of questioning, did I call it wrong in the Jordan? Like, did I have something wrong? I said, no, the, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, did I miss something? Because this doesn't seem to be the pattern I thought it would follow. And so you got people questioning. you got people outright rejecting and calling him a demon worshiper and, and telling him he's a sinner for picking grain on the Sabbath. And then you've got this multitude that's following him. And immediately after this, Jesus launches, or Matthew records for us, this sermon we call the parabolic discourse, where every single parable is about groups of people. He, le- he leads off with the parable of the sower. He's like, hey, not all soil is good soil. Some soil receives and some soil doesn't receive. And this, this immediately follows the first time we see people openly rejecting Jesus. And then he, the, the wheat and the tares and, and the dragnet that grabs everything and some's good and some's bad and the, the pearl of great price and the treasure. And, and so for the first time, Jesus seems fixated or focused on that not everyone 
receives this thing. Not everyone seems to get it. And Matthew kind of lumps this sermon immediately after all these stories about some people who don't get it, who don't get it. And so Jesus um, is preaching. So again, the bulk of what is happening in his life sets up this sermon. And so immediately from there, uh, Matthew launches into a new batch. Make sure I didn't miss anything. Just rambling. Launches into a new batch of stories. Uh, again, miracles like the second batch, um, feeding of 5,000 people. Jesus and Peter both walk on water. Uh, Jesus heals a Gentile woman who came and the disciples had turned her away. The disciples said, no, go away. And Jesus spoke to her and, and wound up healing her because she had faith. And Jesus was even shocked at her faith. Then they feed 4,000. Jesus warns uh, the disciples. He has this big, hey, look out for the, for the leaven of the Pharisees. And they didn't get it. And they were like, he wants talking about bread. And he's like, no, 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 I'm talking about the Pharisees. There's something about their religion that's not good. Be careful of it. This is the first time Peter confesses Jesus as Christ. We have the Mount of Transfiguration thing where Jesus takes three of his disciples into this incredibly holy moment. And then we have this moment where Jesus can't, or where the disciples can't heal this kid. They can't cast the demon out of this kid. And, and Jesus has this almost bizarrely angry response. Like, how long will I be with you, O ye of little faith? Like, he kind of goes off on him a little bit. And so for the first time in all these miracles that we've had, we see what I would call cooperative miracles. Almost every miracle recorded in this, in this little batch involves the disciples in some way. So the 5,000, they come to him and he's like, you feed them. And they're like, well, we've got this is a couple fish sandwiches. Like, what are we going to do? And, and he blesses it and they have to pass out the food. So for the first time, they're the ones. And whenever you think about those feeding miracles, really the only people who would have been fully like engaged in the miracle itself would have been the disciples. Everybody else, all they knew was baskets of food were coming and they were just grabbing food. The disciples were the ones that were like, cow, this started out as like a couple loaves and fishes. And then every time they go in, there's more. They would have been the ones who were most like uh, getting the most out of this miracle, I guess, if you want to say it that way. They're the ones who are understanding the miracle the most because they're a part of it. You see Peter walking on water just like Jesus. Like he's like, for the first time, Peter's like, hey, if that's you, call me out there. Let me do that. And, and Jesus says, come on, you do that. And, and he does. And, and, this, and Jesus seems really frustrated whenever they can't join in. And so for the first time, we see that Jesus is kind of setting this pattern where this was not supposed to be just me. This was not supposed to be just a Jesus thing. This is supposed to be you know, Jesus and his people thing. He expected his disciples to... To, con- to contribute and be part of this. And this immediately leads into what we call the, the ecclesiological discourse or the discourse on the church. And so Jesus takes the, this, these, this batch of stories where he's trying to include and involve his disciples in his ministry. And then he launches into a teaching on what the church is supposed to be like, especially the heart of the church. Because the more involved they get, the, 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 the more they become part of the miracles, they start asking questions like, hey, who's the greatest? Who's just the best in the kingdom? Who's on top? And Jesus is like, no, you're missing the whole thing. That's not the way this works. And he, he takes a kid and he's like, this is, he's the greatest. And, and we talked about how he, he goes at your heart for those that are kind of beneath you, your heart for the lost, your heart for your other brothers and sisters, and all of which goes back to your understanding of 
how God has forgiven you. He, he tells this final parable about this, this servant who has forgiven millions of dollars and then turns around and chokes out his, his fellow servant for a couple hundred bucks. And, and Jesus says the, the master completely goes off and, and destroys that one. So we, we find out that this attitude, this kind of heart feeling that we're all supposed to have toward others in all these different places, those beneath us, those uh, who are lost, those who are our brothers and sisters, all comes from this understanding of, of our relationship to God and what God has done for us and how God has forgiven us. And so again, these sermons kind of match the, the stories that are told beforehand. And so what we're seeing is Matthew, Matthew wasn't most likely just kind of recording like a, like a journal. This isn't just diary, like a diary entry of, of what Jesus did and just, you know, this is Matthew intentionally piecing together this, this revelation, this testimony of who Jesus was. And he does it very intentionally and the Holy Spirit I'm, I know is inspiring and guiding him, but Matthew was piecing this thing together intentionally, which is going to mean something to us here in a minute. So his last little batch of stories get considerably more confrontational. We have the triumphant entry, triumphal entry where Jesus rides in and the Pharisees are waiting and they're like, shut them up. You've got to make these people shut up. And Jesus is like, if they're quiet, the rocks are going to cry out. Like this is a prophesied moment. And so he comes in and immediately he goes to the temple and he flips the, the tables. And, and so we see this, uh, a different side of Jesus. We see this way more confrontational thing. You know, he curses the fig tree, which is this symbol of, of kind of Israel's fruitfulness. And, and, uh, and we see the Pharisees kind of now openly questioning Jesus on issues like taxes and, and divorce and, and things. We see um, the, there's, there's no more, um, I guess there's, everybody's no more, uh, I guess, being nice. There's no more pulling punches. Everybody's in full kind of attack mode now. The Pharisees and Sadducees are both openly challenging him. He gives this big long speech, woe unto the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he, he just, you know, lists off all these things that they do. And he, and he declares it openly in the temple courtyard. Like he's just, so he's standing like in their home court, just kind of bashing them. Like woe unto you guys who have done all these terrible things. You're whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. Like, like just really powerful confrontational stuff. And immediately after this, Jesus launches into um, this discourse that we just finished up about the clashing of two kingdoms. What's it going to look like when your kingdom finally comes? And, and this, this kind of, where he's kind of telling us how to wait for this kind of clash of kingdoms when he returns. And, and we finally get to that. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And so he sets up this, what we call the eschatological discourse. He sets this up with all these, these stories where we see the kingdoms clashing. We see the, in the actual narrative, we see the kingdoms crashing into each other. The, those who were in power were not thrilled that Jesus was coming in in power. They were like, hey, the current system works great for us. We are really thriving on this the way things are, not real happy about you coming in with a new plan. Like, you know, we, we often wonder how in the world could you, could a guy come in doing the things Jesus did where he heals people and feeds people and 
casts out demons and he's blessing people. Who could have a problem with that? Who could possibly like reject that? And the, and the answer is those who are doing just fine with the way things are. Those who are doing just fine in the current system. They're the ones who generally reject. They're the ones who say, I'm really happy with the way things are. I, I have a handle on everything that's happening. Everything kind of keeps me in power. The system is great. We don't need a new system. So we see that happening. But then Matthew launches into one more batch of stories. Whoops. Did I miss it? Was I one ahead? No. I don't know what happened. It's in my notes, but it's not in the thing. Huh. Somehow we missed a slide. Um, but I can tell you easy. It's <laughs> Jesus getting anointed, uh, where she comes and anoints his feet. We've got the Last Supper story. We've got the garden and his arrest and his trial, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. Matthew wraps up with another batch of stories. And so far, what we've seen is, is we see a batch of stories and, a, and kind of a sermon to go along. A batch of stories and a sermon to go along. So Jesus does some things, then he says some things. Then he does some things, then he says some things. And, and we've got this solid pattern. And then we've got another batch of stories, this kind of final batch of stories. And, uh, and I kind of spent like this week kind of analyzing the way the book went together and deciding I knew I was going to do kind of a conclusion week. This is what we talked about for the last 26 weeks. But I didn't know where to go with it. And then when I saw this last batch of stories, I was kind of left with the question, where's the accompanying sermon? Like where's the final kind of discourse, the final speech that goes with this last batch of, of activities? And I was, the best I could do, the best I could find was what we call the Great Commission. This is the last thing Jesus said. And it's the biggest, I guess, little speech he gives after these last several batches of, of, uh, of stories in this book. And it's short. But I think this is the last thing Jesus has to say in this book. It says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this week I, I kind of felt like the, the end of the story is, this is not the end of the story. Like it, it seems like that's what Jesus wants to drive home or at least Matthew wants to drive home at the end of this book with this kind of, he has this set pattern and he kind of leaves the end standing wide open as if there's more story to tell. There's more preaching to preach. So these final words are not the final words. So how do we respond to that? Jesus wraps this up with low I am with you always. Those are actually his last words in the book of Matthew. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. And so I think as we kind of close out Matthew, the discourses, we have to, um, I guess, confront the realization that it starts with us. That like this, we're supposed to tell the end of the story. Like we're supposed to preach the last sermon. We're supposed to continue the narrative 
that Matthew kind of intentionally, he left it with a therefore go. Like he left it with a, with a command to continue telling the Matthew story. I will always be with you. Matthew ends this book with a challenge. What will you do? What will we do? If all this kingdom stuff that Jesus just laid out is true, if, if, the, if the kingdom is as upside down as Jesus said, if the kingdom is as powerful as Jesus demonstrated it, but there's a point where uh, they had to pay taxes, and, which was a super stressful time in Israel. And, and I think Matthew included this story because of the, and it's only like two verses, because of the nonchalance of the way it happens. Um, because any Jew reading it would have known the day that the Romans came to collect taxes was the most stressful day of the year. It was, it was a big one. And everybody hated it. And people, Rome usually on tax day made examples of a few people just to make sure everybody else took it uh, seriously. There was one um, governor that actually lost his governorship over um, Palestine because he slaughtered like 2,000 people on a tax day just, just to make a demonstration. And, the, and the, the Roman Senate was like, okay, maybe too much. Like, let's put someone else in there. But this was a stressful day. And they come to Jesus and they're like, hey, it's time to pay taxes. And he kind of casually leans over to Peter and he says, hey, who's supposed to pay taxes, the, 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 the children or the servants? And he's like, well, the servants. He says, right, so the children don't have to. But I tell you what, so we don't cause a stir, go catch a fish, our taxes will be inside. And he catches a fish and there's, there's gold coins in it and he opens them up, pays their taxes and it's over. And it just goes by like that, like it's nothing. Like nobody even makes a big deal about this story, but... But it's, Matthew puts it in there like this is kingdom living. This is kingdom living where, where abundance, um, you know, and, and at the same time Jesus is wandering around, doesn't have a big fancy house, he doesn't have a car, he doesn't have much, and, and yet whenever he needs something, he just catch a fish and there it is. Like the abundance is all around. And so you've got Jesus um, leaving and Matthew leaving us with this question of what if this is real? What if this is true? What if this is what kingdom living is supposed to be like? What if it's supposed to be like this deep dive into your inner soul that, that checks your motives and, and pays little attention to what you're doing out here, but more uh, attention on what's going on in your heart? Like, what if the kingdom works like that? If it's not something you can just say, I, I do these things, I don't do these things, and blah, 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 and I'll be good. What if the kingdom's deeper than that? What if it goes in and wants you to change your heart? What if commands like don't worry and fear not and, you know, and these commands that we can't just have control over, what if that's where the gospel wants to go? What if the gospel wants us? We talked a couple of weeks ago about Joseph, you know, when, when we had our family service and, and I came up and talked and I can't get it out of my head that when Joseph went before Egypt, um, went before Pharaoh, at this point, as far as he knows, he's batting 500 on the whole interpreting dreams thing. He had a dream when he was a kid that to this point had not come true even a little bit. His life had gone the opposite direction. He has this dream where he's going to be great and everybody's going to bow down to him. And so far, he's been sold into slavery, been thrown in prison. Everything's gone exactly opposite of the way he interpreted that dream. Then he interprets some dreams in prison. And you got the cupbearer and the baker and he interprets those and he gets those right. So now he's 50-50. And he goes in front of Pharaoh with a 50% success rate and still believes in God and says, God's going to interpret your dream. 
And God's been challenging me with that because there's been a plenty of people I've prayed for that haven't been healed. And I'm like, do I have the guts to, to when I'm batting 500, go up and do it again and just say, you know what? I'm still going to do it. I'm still going to pray. I'm still going to speak it out. I'm still going to, you know, Joseph stood up in front of Pharaoh and then come to find out the one that it hadn't come to pass yet later comes to pass. But at this point, he's got very little to go on in terms of building his confidence that he can tell Pharaoh God will absolutely interpret your dream for you. But he does it anyway. That's something God just had in front of me. Like, when you're not seeing it, are you willing to step out again? Like, when you're batting 500, are you willing to go again? And I feel like that's the question Matthew's hanging in front of us, is what if this kingdom is real? What if this is what it's supposed to be like? What if this is, what if, what if this healing and abundance and, and this deep inner soul work that the gospel wants to do inside of us, what if all these things... Are real. What if we're supposed to advance this kingdom? And so as we respond tonight, as we go to the table, um, I guess I just invite you to do, to wrestle with that question. What if, what if this is real? What if Matt, what if, what if everything Matthew gave us, that Jesus said and did, the commands to go and do likewise, the commands to, what if this is how he wants his people to live? What, what, what would you do? if it was real, I guess is my question.